You're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, and this week I'm joined by... I'm Danielle Partis. I'm Jeffrey Russo. And I'm Brendan Sinclair. We're going to be talking about the biggest stories of the past week, starting with the arrival of Returnal and the inevitable return of the difficulty discussion and the related kind of issues that go around these sort of games. Returnal's obviously a triple-A roguelike, or roguelite. I can never keep track of which one's which. I have to say I'm not into the rogue genre myself. Um, We should, by the time you have this episode in your ears, we should have a a full CritCon up, a critical consensus, um, which is our reviews roundup up on the site. So feel free to go uh, over to the site and read that if you want to get a kind of a flavour of what everyone thinks of it. But the um, the reviews are coming out so far, and it, it looks like it's doing quite well. But, yeah, inevitably the conversation comes up as to whether you know how hard games should be how punishing games should be and whether or not this works at the the 70 dollar price point um yeah I, I i'm not too into the roguelite genre either um with the exception of hades the thing that made hades um a good entry point was um the god mode which um altered the difficulty a little bit to make it more accessible to people um and i think that because of that, people are now expecting uh, a difficulty slider in Returnal and in other roguelikes when it's not really a normal thing, I don't think. Hmm. Well, it's such a, a staple of AAA games now, right? That that just mm. being being thrown into a, a game without a difficulty option, especially if it's a game that isn't like sort of marketed or, or notorious for it, like Dark Souls, is... Um, it's it's a switch for for people, and I, I think what interests me about Returnal is just that we we haven't really seen AAA roguelikes before. Um, at least I'm not really familiar with any, and and the the genre and the AAA format, like in some ways, I think they they make a whole lot of sense together. In other ways, they don't really make sense at all and i think this is kind of a a friction point that that comes up from that because like triple a games they're they're about being accessible and appealing to the largest audience possible because the budget's so big you got to make it up with as many uh customers as possible and roguelikes they often have like an unpredictable difficulty curve because of the random elements uh and there's there's i think a historical bent in the genre towards punishing difficulty because of uh partly because of their their root inspirations like if you want to go all the way back to rogue and 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 partly because like that's how that's how they keep people invested in going through something which is sort of by its nature really repetitive right um they lean on difficulty like how many times have you gotten to a new stage in a roguelike and instantly thought Oh well, I'll I'll never be able to handle that. The first time I hit Elysium in Hades, I, w- I was just like pretty crushed pretty quickly, and and I'm like, well, I don't know when I'm going to come back to this game again. It was it was the next night, but still, <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's those those parts of it don't really fit together. But on the same time, like uh, AAA, they their risk that AAA games take tends to be in the budget. You know, they throw money at mm-hmm. places where you can get reliably pretty impressive results if you if you put the money there. Like graphical fidelity and complex sprawling worlds filled with detail that needed to be put in by an army of developers. With roguelikes, 
the risks tend to come on the design side, I think, where they have a whole mess of systems interacting with each other. And there's not much of a guarantee that the end result will actually click the way that you want it to with players, no matter how much you fine tune it. And then, but you know, AAA is expensive. It's so expensive and reusing content the way roguelikes do and putting people through the same, basically the same content over and over and over again, addresses one of the chief difficulties in, in AAA. So like this, the difficulty discussion here and, and people coming to this with the expectation of it being like a next gen exclusive AAA game to show off the PS5 and then running into something that is not the the standard AAA experience, I think, is um, that 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 conflict, that tension between the expectations and the reality of what's being offered, I think, it is what would drive a lot of the like, oh, this should have a difficulty slider kind of thing, just because that's what people are used to when they when they spend seventy bucks on on AAA stuff. I do wonder if the timing of Returnal's release has worked somewhat against it, in that it is one of the first, if not the first, big. PS5 exclusive released since launch. Obviously, like there are a handful of titles um, available, you know, back in November, um, but then even then, most of those were available on PS4. This is one of the first ones that's truly exclusive to PS5, and as you say, like kind of that that showcase of what the PS5 can do that your PS4 can't, and you know, in theory, your your Xbox Series X can't. And yet, yeah, it's this somewhat inaccessible game. That you know, there are always going to be early adopters as well who get caught up in the zeitgeist of right. Here's the big new release. Everyone's talking about Returnal. I've not played a roguelike before. I don't even know what a roguelike is. But um, yeah, maybe if everyone's going that this is the game to get for my PS5, then then I'll do it. And then you run into that barrier of oh, this is this is not what I expected. Like as you as you say, like that AAA level of yeah, this is this is not as fun. Different people find that roguelike structure fun. Um, and I probably not the sort of people, or not 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 everyone who finds roguelikes fun will have the same view of what is fun at AAA. Is what I'm trying to say there. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I'm a big fan of of roguelikes. I guess uh, I never thought of myself like that before, but I realized that a lot of the games I play are actually roguelikes. I think Returnal you know, comes at a point where it, it it's interesting because at not not to compare the two, but this goes back to the conversation about what what folks tend to want to um you know experience as as far as difficulty goes. The fact that it's coming after Hades, even though I know Hades is, you know, uh indie game and the way it approaches the roguelike genre is pretty different to anything else has done it before right but it, it's the fact that this title is within the same genre but like the way difficulty is more more i i guess the word i want to use is traditional i don't even know if that that really sticks now in 2021 but um yeah it, it's the fact that hey this is tough as nails is going to kick you in the teeth um type of thing and you know this looks really great um this is not going to be everyone's cup of tea kind of thing and 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 that's something i think that you know you you want to stand back and and look at you know where where hades not released 
prior to this game coming out, I think the conversation would be a little different about what we're talking about right now because difficulty and accessibility, they they tend to get lumped in together when mm. really that's not really the the case. They're they're not the same thing, and I, I don't want anyone like jumping in my mentions and telling me that I'm wrong because like wh- when you sit down and you break it up, how people approach games and play them accessibility and difficulty aren't the same thing is that of course you can um again i go back to hades you you have a god mode where the game um is is helping the player okay you know not everyone is able going to uh, is able to to play this game in this way so here's an option that's available to help other folks and stuff like that and not to say just because returnal doesn't have that that doesn't mean that that's a oh that's a bad idea or bad game design i, I think that's something important too that we we should um acknowledge is is that when you have something that is so popular and it's like something that everyone thinks of is like, hey, maybe this is how we should apply difficulty. It's very hard, I think, to come after after that and we'll say, well, this is what we're doing. And you kind of get a label, it's like, well, you're not doing right or what have you, where I know we have the CritCon um, going on, but like, you know, different folks have, you know, different aversions to the game but they don't really necessarily come to the fact that it wasn't really accessible right it's just that roguelikes are tough (laughs) let's be honest right (laughs) they are tough they will kick your teeth in and but i think it's just really difficult for something to come after you know hades when it's in the same genre triple a or not um Mm. i think the thing that hades did as well um and I have to confess, I've not played Hades yet. Yet, but the, the the more I hear about it, the more I read about it. It's like this looks like the one that will get me to try a roguelike. Is the fact that when you die, when you fail, narratively you are not set back. It is factored into the story that my understanding is like it's factored into the story. Right, that run didn't work, but you end up facing Hades, and he essentially says, "Right, have a go again." And narratively, the story continues, whereas with most roguelikes and most games that are built on that, you know, being hard as nails, kicking the teeth kind of thing, you are constantly being set back and your progress is limited to, right, how far can I get? Oh, no, I've got to start again. How far can I get? No, I've got to start again. And that I can see being very frustrating for certain people because I am one of them. Yeah, it, yeah. Is, it is definitely I think it is well. that. Sorry, Daniel. Mm-hmm. No, I, I was just going to... Um go on from from Jeffrey's point um about like difficulty and i think one of my one of my personal gripes it's not something that everyone will have but um is that this is a big budget game um with a lot of resources and it's super polished and it looks really good and i to me there isn't a a disadvantage to having a different difficulties that open up the game to to different types of players and it doesn't really take away from the intended experience of, of people that don't want to use those difficulty modes that want to play on the, the recommended setting or difficulty or whatever and especially with, with the game having such a high price point as well um, Returnal initially to me felt like a game that I would want to pick up and play um, but knowing that knowing that it's kind of rigid in its ways and no accommodation has been put in it, it just means that I won't pick it up and play it, although I want to, because I know that I won't get on with it. And it feels like a an omission that could be there, but just 
isn't um, because players like myself either you just deal with it or don't play it <laughs> if that makes sense that was a bit of a ramble <laughs> yeah like I, I don't want to underestimate the the difficulty associated with like fine-tuning the uh, the different systems in in a rogue like for you know various uh difficulty levels but i i actually i i don't know about the rest of its kind of accessibility functions or options or anything like that but i, I i'm not opposed to the idea of a triple a game without um difficulty levels if it, if it works and you can offer them then that's great but i'm I, I take a little bit of encouragement, I guess, from a AAA release that is different from the norm. You know that that maybe it has some some rough edges. Maybe it's not the the most you know um, appealing or uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for easily digestible experience for the most number of people out there uh, because. I, I, I just think that the, the weird, slightly broken, unusual stuff that games can offer, which is, is so much of, you know, what I've always loved in games, uh, it gets it gets lost in the in the triple A worlds, you know, it gets increasingly lost in triple in A over the last couple of decades as the budgets have gotten higher and higher and, and companies have just felt like they absolutely need to make it appeal to absolutely everyone and follow the safest possible um, course toward that in order to justify the amount of money that they're putting into it. So like uh, seeing seen weird or counterintuitive or unusual design decisions in AAA is, is something uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, instantly just kind of, uh, I'm not going to like instantly toss it out when I hear about it. Like, cause that's, that's something I would actually like to see AAA embrace a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, that there is a, a, a difference between, um, accessibility and difficulty, which people do seem to forget as, as Jeffrey said earlier, but I think there's a lot of crossover with them as well. Um, so things like, like colorblind difficulties and um, adjusting UI to read text is an accessibility thing, but then things like um, like reaction times and, and hand-eye coordination and things like that are also accessibility toggles that come into difficulty settings. Um, and that's where it, it kind of gets a little bit blurred in that the game is kind of saying you have to have these response times or this coordination to play this game and if you don't then you're not going to get on with it and i think that's kind of where the lines blur for me but they're not the same thing as you said yeah, yeah uh i know that this really doesn't have anything to do with this current conversation but if we ever talk about accessibility again at length i really want to talk about in-game text in text size I, that, mm-hmm. that that has nothing to do with anything with the current conversation. As someone that wears glasses, just this is just a note <laughs> for everyone to know. I'm gonna have a lot to say about that. But anyway, great points, Daniel. I will agree with everything that um, Jeffrey will hypothetically say at one point about in-game text sizes. Just having <laughs> yeah. having played Dead Rising when it first came out on a standard deaf TV, <laughs> I, I recognize <laughs> that this is a problem. 
One last point I kind of want to make, and apologies if this kind of echoes what we've already said, is is that notion of what the intention of the game game developer is, like the, the, the experience they want to design. If they want to design something like Returnal to be this $70, hard as nails, kick you in the teeth, really inaccessible to... Uh, inaccessible to people in terms of difficulty not necessarily in terms of accessibility I think accessibility in terms of just general kind of um, different people's abilities to play and so forth I think accessibility options should be a, a standard across the board that that's just I think no longer up for debate but in terms of difficulty in terms of how hard a game is for the majority of players fine if if that's if that's their intention i'm okay with that but i think there's still personally there still needs to be an option to allow people to choose whether or not they want to play it in a different way the example i will give and it's not a roguelike is i've just finished control um on xbox and that's what it's got like different kind of um options in the menu ones like aim assist so as soon as you press the uh, you know the left trigger it snaps onto an enemy rather than you having to manually aim at someone or one hit kills so you don't have to you know fire endless amounts of bullets um at these bullet sponge enemies and when you select any of those it comes up there's a message that comes up along the lines of Control is designed to be challenging and frustrating. If you change these options, you are changing the... the, the it's something like you're changing... the. the um, you're opting for an experience that's not what the developer in, intended. And I was okay with that, so I just clicked okay and continued. And I like that freedom. I'd like more games to give me that option of, yeah, you know what? I will play this the way the de- developer intended as long as I can manage it. But you know what? When it's getting too difficult, and when I just, I, you know, I personally am a very narrative-driven player. I just want to see the end of the story. I think I got to like the final chapter, and I like, right, one hit kills. I'm just, I'm just barreling through the end of this because I have killed so many of these same enemies earlier on. I do not need to do it over and over and over and over again. I just want to get through to the end of this, and that doesn't affect anyone but myself. So I don't see why having that. As an option, is I understand the technical difficulties of implementing such an an option for developers, but I don't understand why such an option offends all the people who would never actually use it. Mm. Mm. So take your artistic vision and shove it, huh? <laughs> it's not quite what I said. What I mean is, well, it's funny. Take it's funny. It must be the accent because that's what I heard. <laughs> what, what I mean is, take take your arguments of get good and stuff it. Yeah, those are those are not good arguments. Also this week, uh, Accenture released a survey uh, surveying 4,000 people from China, Japan, the US and UK, looked into various aspects of the um, games industry and how people interact with these games. All people who uh, took part had played for at least four hours a week. There were some really interesting findings in this, including that 66% of people um, either agreed or completely agreed that that they were more likely to play a video game if the game design company is socially responsible, e.g. they are involved in environmental sustainability efforts or are a champion for marginalised communities. And this is a point that I think was very, very important to kind of make. And Brendan, well done on, um, on kind of putting this in the headline. Um, this emphasises something that we, we've, we've discussed before, but maybe haven't had the numbers to back it up. All the whining we see on Twitter and in forums, and in comments, and all the other, you know, the, the places about um, 
anything that goes again anything that's against the idea of socially responsible games or games that appeal to you know broader demographics than your typical 18 to 30 year old four year old white male um are actually something that people want it's gonna be a little awkward but i'm gonna say i have like the one black person on this podcast no duh (laughs) like (laughs) come on (laughs) Like, I mean, um, when, when, um, and and again, thank you, Brendan, for, you know, writing that article, like, um, it it mentions, what is it like the, the naysayers, what make up what 9%, you know, again, it, it just goes to show you, this is something, let's not be around the bush. This is something that that's been apparent in, um, all forms of media, uh, since like forever, um, you know, and, uh, yeah, it's great to, you know, like you said, to see hard numbers that actually say, yes, this, this is the case. And I'm sure that, you know, a lot of companies probably have like their own, um, you know, surveys that, that tell them the same thing. And, you know, speaking personally, not, not to go on a rant or anything like that, but I, most of the games that I find myself gravitating towards or, or playing are games that are socially, um, you know, responsible or make you think about, um, you know, just larger, more important things that, that are going on. Um, for example, I, I I was playing, you know, Say No More, which is a game that's really about, um, you know, you, you being empowered to set, you know, your personal boundaries, be they personal or at work. You know, that's really important. Um, uh, also, I remember uh, not too long ago, I was playing If Found, which is... Um, a game um, about a trans woman who, you know, telling her life experiences, which was, you know, a really profound game. Um, one of my favorite games I played last year. And also I'm, I think of, you know, Spider-Man Miles Morales. That game is literally about the threat of, you know, gentrification in black and brown neighborhoods, which is something that I see. <laughs> and you're literally fighting against it. And it, anyway, it's, just, it's to say that, yeah, these things are important. Aside from the fact that, you know, it makes you think about what's really happening out there. It, it, it's also, us as consumers or players or however you want to say, it also helps you think about, hey, this is also what's going on. Um, and, you know, while I say this too, I'm also thinking about the Life is Strange series. And they're popular for those same reasons, right? Because we have these marginalized um, characters who are, you know, just going through these journeys and, you know, us as consumers are just seeing their stories, which are, you know, may, may or may not really follow what <laughs> folks in real life um, are dealing with. But, you know, it's a great piece of entertainment that really makes you think. And um, I'm here for it. I want more. Yeah. I need so, more. like, <laughs> a, a lot of the, the um, media that I, I, I think the U.S. in particular has, has exported. Um, historically, it reflected a very U.S.-centric point of view and, and with a lot of, you know, white male protagonists. Um, the world is a lot more connected, a lot smaller. We have a lot more access to other markets. And the number of people in the world who are not, straight white males uh, vastly outnumbers those who are. And if if you're a company and you want to sell to those people because their money is, is just as good, then you got to make something that they're going to want to 
that they're they're going to want to read, that they're going to want to play, that they're going to want to watch or listen to. And it's it, it's something that we've seen, you know, it's been really obvious for for a number of years I think that that all companies basically recognize that diversity and inclusion is it's at least a winning PR strategy. I mean, Activision might make a habit of hiring former Trump administration people and arguable war criminals uh, for <clears throat> for appearing in Call of Duty and things like that. But you still go to their web, their corporate website, and there is a big old page on diversity and inclusion, and their their float in the pride parade and all their you know super happy employees loving everything. Like companies, they they know that the market is bigger than than what it used to be that they were missing an opportunity by focusing on just one audience like that and in in the last decade in particular i think we've seen a lot a lot of uh companies waking up to that and leaning into it you know we're, we're getting things like black panther captain marvel last of us part two overwatch where even when they're even when they're not like handling everything great, because I can come up with criticisms about actually not Black Panther. I haven't I haven't really heard much about that one. Um, I can come up with criticisms about just about every other like you know massive corporate attempt to to kind of reach out to these audiences though. But they're still so much better than what we what we had before. And as as someone that like you know grew up with that you know, very Western limited perspective being offered in media. I am so ready for, for more, more stories of people who don't look like me, of, of people who, who might share my, my values, you know, but, but aren't, aren't from my background. Uh, and, and that 9% of people, who who look at this and say no i don't want that i want things the way they were i i want the the old pecking order to be maintained i want the same people to be catered to as have been catered to for decades they are a they're of such a small slice of of the market uh, that I, I just don't know why more companies aren't more vocal about rejecting them because they aren't like I've, I've, I've been one of my great frustrations with the, with the games industry is, is how all these companies with their diversity and inclusion pages on their websites and their chief of DNI hires have been, uh, just so, so callow when it comes to actually rejecting these people and kicking them out of their communities and, and so, so slow to, to stand up and, and say like, no, we don't, we don't want your business. We don't want you around. Uh, and, and things like this, like this survey saying like, Hey, 66% of people really like it when you do this and 9% don't, but you know, if you're making a triple A dude shooter, they'll probably buy it anyways. Um, 
like that, maybe that gives these companies a little bit more encouragement to just, you know, if the anecdotal success of Last of Us and Black Panther and Captain Marvel and all that didn't give them the courage, maybe, maybe just, you know, more stuff like this will actually cause some action from them. And I do feel like we're edging towards that anyways. So I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat encouraged by, by trends, but you know, I, I wish we would get there a lot quicker. What we almost, part of what we need is, is for the, the 66% or or anyone that's not in the 9% to do more to kind of shout and say, Hey, look, this is amazing. Well done. Keep doing this because I feel like the, the 9%, the reason that they are, they seem so dominant is just because they're the very, very, very vocal minority, as we've called them on this show before, the very vocal minority. Um, like, they are, it's it's the, the trouble with the echo chamber that is social media. Like, it sounds like that that's the main issue. Is like, you know, the, the, all the stuff around Last of Us 2 when it came out last year, like... It, you know, I don't even follow those sort of people, and yet those sort of tweets were appearing in my timeline. Like it feels like it feels like a bigger deal because that portion is louder. And what I'd love to see is more people, more people being positive in general on social media, but more people being positive about these sort of things and being positive about the ways that it's got right. Because you're right, it, it's not perfect. We have a long, long way to go as an industry. The industry has a lot of of improving to do, but the things it does get right, and we can if we can emphasize the thing it's, it does get right. Um, example I'll give is um, a few months ago I spoke to uh, Colpreet Verdi, who is the founder of the the Assassin's Creed Sisterhood, the kind of fan movement, kind of championing the the female protagonist in the series and kind of highlighting the the things that that are right and equally kind of positively challenging Ubisoft on right, okay, you've done this, can you do this better? Um she was saying to me, and I didn't manage to fit into the interview, she was saying that to me that um one of the DLCs for Assassin's Creed Syndicate featured a Sikh assassin. Um and she, she was like, as, as someone from a Sikh background, I so very, very rarely, I don't think I've ever seen a Sikh character as a prominent role in a AAA product. Now, obviously, that could be better because it's still in, in a DLC, but it's still a start. And it's kind of, if we saw more people saying, yes, this is good, do more of this, and drown out that 9%, hopefully, maybe, the companies might start, might start taking notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when I was think looking at this figure initially, and I saw the like the the sixty six percent, which didn't feel particularly high, but then I I thought about that that remaining thirty four percent as well, and I think it's it's kind of not representative of people that just have horrible opinions that hate change, but also um, <laughs> people that that don't really follow industry politics or or things about company culture or news or anything like that they just know that they want to play a game when it comes out and they'll play it when it comes out they don't follow the the kind of stuff surrounding a game or a title or a company yeah i mean that that's the like the 24 percent or so that were neutral on on the statement right like um it's I, i i don't have anything necessarily against those people i mean i understand if you if you don't if if you want some kind of escapism and you don't want to think about real world issues and and the entertainment that you're consuming is sort of making a point 
of real world issues, then that, that might not be what you're looking for. Um, but it's, it, it's more the, the active resistance to it that, um, that, that, that bothers me because so much of it is like, you know, you hear people, uh, derisively talk about virtue signaling and I've, I've never really under, under stood that phrase as, as a problem. Like I understand someone thinking like, well, they don't really mean this, the good thing they're saying. They're just saying it in order to, you know, help their career or something. Uh, but I don't, I don't get the, this person is saying a good thing. They're saying that this good thing is good and people should do more of it. Oh no, I, I can't stand that. It's like, who, who doesn't like virtue? You can disagree about what <laughs> virtues are and what things are virtuous, but who is sitting there saying like, you know, virtue, like pff, pass. We should all just be total shit lords. There's, there's a, I guess we'll never know, but yeah, just going off of that, we'll, we'll never know the degree of how much active, uh, how many, I, well, I mean to say how many, you know, bad actors there are in, in regards to pushback, but there was something that um, James mentioned um where you know hey you know how how do we you know uh i guess it's kind of weird to say this but that that's what we're, we're we're trying to say how to empower companies to really just you know acknowledge this and move on with it it, it it comes down to the sales right it's how well do these titles that do fall along being socially responsible you know championing marginalized communities and again i mentioned miles morales because that that's the biggest one to me um it's that I don't know how well Miles is, is doing apologies on that, but I know it's doing well. And again, that that's a game about a young uh, Afro uh, Latin, you know, character who who lives in a neighborhood that's very real, that's all across the U.S. and, and, and abroad as well, dealing with problems that I think a lot of us deal with. And, you know, it's about togetherness, working with your community and stopping the big bad. And um, it's doing well. And then, you know, as long as, I, as we have more of these games that come out the pipeline and that aren't afraid to be, hey, this is what we're about. People are going to flock to it for very obvious reasons. They're going to sell well. And it's just going to be more proof. And I hate to say it like, oh, here's a PowerPoint showing that when we release this game, whatever. I kind of hate to, you know, bring it down to that. But let's be honest. That, that's what's happen, happening in a lot of these cases. Here's a PowerPoint. Here's our data. Customer sales that prove that we need more of these things. Yes, you do. <laughs> you have plenty of proof. Like, I mean... <laughs> Again, I go back to saying, no, duh, <laughs> we want more of these games. This, come on. <laughs> if you got to do the right thing for the wrong reasons, well, at least it's still the right thing. La 
last story we're going to discuss this week is Toys for Bob, the Activision-owned studio, um, best known for Crash Bandicoot 4 recently, uh, and Skylanders back in the day, Star Control way back in the day, but now it appears, it appears to be working on Call of Duty Warzone. It's currently, it's definitely working on Season 3 of Call of Duty Warzone. The question is now whether or not it is a permanent support studio. Um... There's reports around as well that everyone that wasn't uh, working on Call of Duty or hasn't been moved to Call of Duty has been laid off, or a, a significant number of people have been laid off, but we're still waiting on kind of fully confirmed reports on that. Activision has since confirmed that reports of layoffs at Toys for Bob are incorrect. Uh, a spokesperson said, There has not been a reduction in personnel recently at the studio. The development team is operating fully and has a number of full-time job openings at this time. Part of the thing that came out of this story, part of the conversation around this is... It's, it's yet another Activision studio that is working on Call of Duty, which I honestly lose track. I tried looking into this earlier in between all the other bits I'm doing, but I can't work out if there are any Activision studios that are no longer working on Call of Duty. Sorry, that, that aren't work. Yeah, any, any Activision studios are working on something that is not Call of Duty. Hmm. <laughs> That's a tough one. Yeah. Uh. Well, they they got rid of Vicarious Visions. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think so. So, so like, I w- actually went through and I... Because I, this is a very common story for Activision Studios. And uh, I, I looked at, like, what what they had done to quite a number of their studios uh, in, in just kind of uh, turning them into support studios over the years. Uh, or or shutting them down entirely like this and and uh, there's a pretty long list here. Z Axis, they they made it big with the Dave Mira series. Uh, Activision picked them up, and then when the 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 extreme sports trend started to taper off, they moved them to a Call of Duty project that was canceled and Guitar Hero Van Halen, which just got out the door, and then the studio was shut down. Freestyle Games was acquired during the Guitar Hero heyday to be a support studio. After the bubble burst, they moved them to Call of Duty and Skylanders, then sold them to Ubisoft. Neversoft was the Tony Hawk's pro skater studio. Moved them to Guitar Hero when Activision bought the brand, but left Harmonix on the side. And then after that bubble burst, they moved to Call of Duty support. Uh, Treyarch used to do extreme sports, Spider-Man, 007, bunch of different games. Uh, then when Call of Duty took off with Modern Warfare, they became like the, the B-team to Infinity Ward and alternated them, and they, they've been Call of Duty ever since. Raven did a bunch of games, Heretic, Hex, and obviously Singularity X-Men Legends. It's been straight Call of Duty since 2010. Uh, High Moon had their own Transformers series for a while, they did Deadpool, and they've just been doing Call of Duty and Destiny for the last six, seven years. Uh, Beanox, they were the Spider-Man studio for a few years, and then they did Skylanders, co-dev support, and then some work on Call of Duty. They, they were lead dev on Crash Team Racing, but for the most part, it's just been Call of Duty uh, and Skylanders for them. And then Vicarious Visions, they, they're, they got out, kind of, but not really, um, because they after Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2, the, the remake, uh, they were shifted over to Blizzard where they were doing support work on Blizzard stuff instead of uh, just Call of Duty support, which they had been doing. <sighs> it really is the Call of Duty. Huh? Uh, <laughs> can't turn that one down. Uh, and and 
on the one hand, like I, I look at this and it's really depressing to see a whole bunch of studios that once upon a time had their own like personality and their own varied output all just being funneled toward the same terminal point in, in Activision's corporate uh, history. But um, on the other hand, like this is Activision finding jobs for employees to do. Because like after the Guitar Hero bubble burst, they didn't need all these support studios churning out Guitar Hero games, right? So they're like, well, we have a studio. We have work over here that the studio could do. It's not the same work they were doing, but I mean, if it's this or nothing. <laughs> I do I do wonder if that's what's happened with Toys for Bob, because obviously like, studios do tend to downsize somewhat after the release of a, of a big project. Um, Crash Bandicoot 4 came out in October, I believe, certainly certainly before November. Um, and then, you know, it, it would have had like, you know, patches and kind of updates and stuff. And then once that's done, they wind down and work out whatever's happening there. So it could be, it could be that the core team at Toys for Bob are now back to basics and the, you know, the early stage where you don't need everyone. And while you don't need everyone, those who are not needed or some of those who are not needed are being moved on to Call of Duty. And that does make sense. The question is whether or not they'll be moved back. That's, that's the thing that's hanging in the air over this one back there is no back in, there is no back there is no going back what, from call of duty what, what is activision working on now besides call of duty i don't know you quietly have you've basically got loads of um, fans out there like you know crash bandicoot and spyro to a considerably lesser extent spyro were um or spiro as some people call it um that those franchises were dormant for years perhaps decades and then you've had this kind of revival in the last few years because of the nostalgia because you know the the crash bandicoot insane trilogy did really well crash team racing did really well the spyro reignited trilogy did okay as far as i'm aware crash bandicoot 4 came out and I don't know how well it did, but the fact that it even exists, the fact that they're even making a kind of the, that kind of classic Crash Bandicoot, it kind of felt like Crash and Spyro, certainly Crash, were back, and that you know that these Activision finally has something other than Call of Duty that it works on. It also works on Crash Bandicoot, and it may well be on hold again. Well, yeah, we I mean know. these were nostalgia plays from the start, right? Yeah, and you do a Crash Bandicoot four, and like by all accounts, it seems like they did a good job with it, but. Are people really going to be eager to do Crash Bandicoot 5? Isn't it like Mega Man 11 or 12 or whatever they're up to now? The first yeah, one, 11. Mega Man 9, was it? Was that the first one they did coming back? Like, yes. Everyone was excited about that, that cared about the original Mega Man. Uh, I was. I bought it for sure. I haven't cared about that series since. None of these had any appeal to me, even though, you know, I still have some nostalgia for Mega Man. It's, it, I, I think you can go back to it and like say, hey, here's a new, a new thing in that old style that you like. I think you can do that once. I don't know if you can really keep doing that and make it an ongoing relevant thing again without like a complete from the ground up revamp instead of a nostalgia play. And I think that's what a lot of this uh, recent activity around Activision is, you know, like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 did well. Everyone seemed to like it. They don't seem to have faith that Activision uh, doesn't seem to have faith that that a Tony Hawk Pro Skater 3 and 4 would do as well, even though those were still very good Tony Hawk games because they put they took vicarious visions. And instead of just putting them on to the next one, they're like, yeah, you guys can help out Blizzard with something or other. Like Activision 
I think Activision is done with their with their nostalgia phase. I'm not sure that they can mine it too much more beyond what it is. I'm not sure what they would bring back. Um, yeah, Guitar Hero, Vigilante Eight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love a bit of Vigilante Eight. That was great. It's um, it's a shame because obviously loads of people are. Um, there's a lot of excitement for the new Ratchet and Clank, which is obviously like an older property from that kind of. Not, I mean, Crash is slightly older, but like you know, from that kind of era, that kind of early PlayStation era. Um, loads of people were kind of excited for Ratchet and Clank to 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 come back and kind of reinvent itself. Although I will say Ratchet and Clank is obviously, from what I've seen, looks a far, far superior game to Crash 4. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a shame. Yeah, it, it doesn't feel like franchises like like Crash and, and Spyro are doing enough to reinvent themselves because you've kind of had those remasters of the original trilogies, which were really good games and had really good remasters. But then as I think especially on Spyro's end, the games that came after the original trilogy um, after Insomniac uh, gave up weren't great games. So maybe there's just not a demand to see those games remade or remastered. And the commitment needs to come from creating a new game um, from the ground up to kind of bring back the franchise and not relying on those older games. But they're I don't, not I don't think it. there's much love for Spyro anyway. Like even, even with like the attempt to bring him back with Skylanders back in the day, um, it just it just became Skylanders. Like no one, you forget that Spyro was even part of that. Yeah. So there's another another part of this is is that Activision's retro stuff, um, Crash, Spyro, those aren't Activision franchises. Those those were owned by Vivendi. So when Activision merged with them, they got them. But if you look at the actual Activision output from the era that seems to be fueling this, you know, the the current nostalgia wave, which is like late 90s, early 2000s, Activision's output back then was largely a lot of licensed stuff. And the original stuff wasn't really good enough to, like, bring back and get people excited about. So, like, I just, I don't think that they, that they can keep... Um, keep mining the nostalgia like this. And it's those are the safe plays that they've been doing and the only ones that they've been willing to do outside of Call of Duty and Destiny for like the last five years. And that's the, I, I, I'm, I think they've kind of boxed themselves into a corner, as it were, in the, yeah, they are very much doing safe plays because large companies inevitably try and play it safe because shareholders and, you know, executive salaries and bonuses and so forth wouldn't want to endanger those. Um, Call of Duty is still a safe bet. Like, inexplicably, that, ser- that series is still going, is still best-selling, is still, you know, ridiculously popular. And as you said, like, they have no other IP or very little IP that they can they can draw on beyond that brief kind of nostalgia play. New IP is such a risk buying IP or buying studios is a costly business and I believe Bobby Kotick said something earlier this week in the uh, Games Beat Summit about like you know they're not really ready to get into the M&A game because they don't need to which I would I would debate um but it, it makes me kind of concerned because like I'm kind of concerned oh no I'm worried about the giant billion dollar corporation um but they they only have Call of Duty and Call of Duty is still they they're putting all their eggs in one basket 
it is one of the baskets that it's the basket that produces the one of the most exp, uh, sorry most lucrative most popular franchises of the year every year is it something like 13 years that Call of Duty has been the best selling game in the US consecutively it's something like it's something like we're coming up on a decade and a half of America buying nothing but Call of Duty and um, so it's not exactly a, a precarious position but just on paper if all of your if all of your business depends on this one franchise and if all of your multiple studios that Brendan so effortlessly lifted, listed off earlier um, are all dedicated to this one franchise, as and when that franchise starts to decline, you are not in a position to transform yourself and adapt. Yeah, like, that. all, all that to be said is, you're right, you're right. Yeah, the, it's hard to really dispute that. Um the thing that I, I mentioned, um, you know, uh, before we started recording uh, to Daniel and uh, Brendan was that I just can't imagine and that, you know, you were working on Crash 4 and you're thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm probably going to be working on, you know, creating maybe some friend, uh, family friendly games with anthropomorphic animals saving the day or what have you. Then you get an email and say, hey, you're shifting you over to Call of Duty. I'm, I'm just trying to think what... <laughs> I, I don't mean to make light of that. I, I just think, you know, it's just like... Folks probably got whiplash getting that announcement, you know? Um, but yeah, it, it's hard to deny, you know, how culturally relevant Call of Duty is. It's like one of those... Um, it's going to go down in history as this piece of media that's just been relevant to so many people for all the reasons that James said and many other reasons as well. Um, but yeah, I, and I keep thinking back to, you know, as James was saying, if that is your only thing, what, what does it say? And, and I'm thinking this more, you know, as, as a creative myself, when you have only one thing and you're putting so much power and weight behind it, can you really say in a business that, that, that literally thrives on new and fresh ideas or just remixing them to where they're like really excitable for, for their uh, po- uh, buying population. Can you really say that you're at the top of your game? Obviously, you could tell me yes because of all the money that you're making. Points but creatively, <laughs> it's like, mm, right. But creatively, yeah. are you? Yeah, and- I think one, th- one thing that... that- we kind of get confused about in the in this conversation. Like we we keep talking about Activision, and I keep thinking about Activision as a singular entity. And obviously, it's combined with Blizzard. Blizzard, right? But, he, but even then, like I I I can't think of another AAA publisher that only has or relies heavily on one franchise. So okay, Activision Activision is combined with Blizzard. So you do have World of Warcraft and Diablo and Overwatch backing it up. There's there's some kind of support there, but you compare that to EA, which has FIFA, Madden, NFL, Battlefield, um, Need for Speed, Need for Speed, MLB, like um, you know load, loads of franchises. Um, Take Two, if if you know factor in Rockstar as well, you know you've got Grand Theft Auto, Grand Theft Auto, Red Dead Redemption, Bioshock, Mafia, um, you know the NBA Two K, all these you know WWE Two K, all these big franchises. Ubisoft, you know Assassin's Creed, Watch Dogs, Far Cry, Just Dance, Rabbids to an extent, Rayman whenever they can be 
whenever they think to roll one of those out. Like, they all have so many different kind of irons in the fire. And Activision, if you discount Blizzard, which everyone seems to do, and I, th- and I feel like there's a reason for that, is just this one franchise. And that just, it, it, it's odd, it's unusual. It's, I'm looking at the Activision website now and their games list. Uh, and I, I think if they do things like Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, you know, if they just like third party publish another studio's games, that's that's one way for them to expand in the future. But uh, I'm, I'm enjoying looking at their games list and seeing like it's it's a lot of Call of Duty. There's the Spyro Crash stuff that we talked about. And, and then it's like prototype Geometry Wars 3 Dimensions Evolved Sierra King's Quest <laughs> collection. <laughs> like So uh th- you say Geometry Wars, I was gonna I was gonna bring this up. This is the one studio that survived the Call of Duty cursed. Bizarre Creations, the UK studio that did Geometry Wars and uh Project Gotham Rating Racing, they were owned by Activision as of 2007, and they never worked on a Call of Duty game. <laughs> they did one James Bond game that people refused to acknowledge was good, and then they were shut. Well, so the way to avoid doing Call of Duty is to make a bad or, or a perceived to be bad Bond game, and that's your way out. I will not stand for this blur erasure. No, sorry, yes. <laughs> I'm more of a split second man myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, it, split second. It, it is. It is fantastic how that game is uh, remembered and left a mark, <laughs> even though it didn't make a dent in the sales charts when it came out. <laughs> yes, more split second. That is all we've got time for this week. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be back on Friday with another GI Live session. Uh, if you haven't already listened to it, go back and listen. We've uh, published the audio version of the interview that we did with Guha Bala from Velen Studios, talking about the journey through Vicarious Visions, another Activision-owned franchise that uh, managed to escape the uh, Call of Duty curse, as we explained, and is now working on Knockout City. Um, check on your feed on your podcasting platform of choice. It's there, so download and have a listen. And um, We'll have another one on Friday. You can also find all previous podcasts of the Game Developers Playlist and the five games of. And in the meantime, you can get all news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. Go on, James. Go on, finish your thought. No, no, finish the thought. I'm not sure I had any more thoughts. (laughs)